Hello, before I begin, I would just like to thank everyone here listening to the very first episode of The Field of Screams. I wanted to create a podcast to which I discuss horror movies and talk about what goes on behind the scenes and discuss what happens in the movie. If you are tuning in right now, I'm guessing you either A, like the genre, or B, like the movie that I'm talking about. And I hope that you enjoy this content that I've made and... Who knows, maybe you'll join me on my journey as I continue to make these about different movies. Again, thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to The Field of Screams. This is your host, Tyler Singleton. I created this page to talk about horror films. This first episode will be all about the found footage phenomenon, The Blair Witch Project. Let's get started. The Blair Witch Project started as a collaboration between film students Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez. The two had a discussion about what horror films scared them the most. Both agreed on psychological films such as The Exorcist and The Shining, but they also recalled how paranormal documentaries spooked them while they were growing up. Myrick and Sanchez both wondered how they can combine the elements of the psychological horror and the documentaries they watched as kids growing up, and what they ended up creating was a cultural icon. Sanchez and Myrick crafted a 35-page screenplay that originally was called The Blair Witch Tapes. This was later changed to The Blair Witch Project. Um, in the 35-page screenplay, the screenplay lacked a lot of dialogue, and the two directors decided to go the route of getting uh, the actors to ad-lib a lot of the dialogue in the film to make it more of an authentic process. There were supposed to be three men as the cast for the Blair Witch Project. Heather Donahue ended up winning everyone over in the audition process. The audition question was, If you were a convict who served in prison several years, explain to us why we should let you out. Heather Donahue looked at them straight in the face and just said, I don't think you should let me out. Both of the directors were very impressed with the creativity of her answer. The three lead actors picked for the film Blair Witch Project were Heather Donahue, Michael C. Williams, and Joshua Leonard. The filmmakers decided to use the actors' real names for their characters. All three actors were unknown in the film industry, and that was a tactic that was used to make the film seem more real. The Blair Witch Project wasn't the first movie to try to use the tactic to make the movie seem real. The film Hannibal Holocaust was the first film to do this technique, and it seems so real that the director of the film Hannibal Holocaust was actually arrested because the general public thought he made a snuff film. The actors in that film had to come up and prove his innocence in court um, and actually prove that they weren't dead. To shoot this movie, the three actors were paid $1,000 a day for eight days uh, for essentially 24-hour filming. To accomplish this, the directors had to hire actors that were not part of the union uh, in which there were rules to safeguard talent from working unnecessarily hours for very low pay, like they did for this movie here. Heather's loved ones were very weary of her participating in this project. Her mom asked her to collect all the social security numbers of everyone involved in the film. A lot of her friends also talked her into buying a huge knife to bring to set. 
just in case they were trying to lure her in to make a snuff film. I mean, it's kind of hard to blame her. The details were very vague. They said that it was just going to be all improv. They're going to go into the woods and that she needed to be prepared to be very uncomfortable. And most of the details were unknown. Before I go too much further into the film itself, I do want to talk about how Myrick and Sanchez use different styles to kind of bring people in to see this movie to make it seem more realistic. The first I'd like to talk about is the website they created. The website, there's different parts of the website to where you can look. There's fake police recordings. There's, it looks like crime scene evidence of the film laying around. It looks very grungy. As excerpts from Heather's supposedly diary. Um, it all looks very real. And I mean, in this age when the internet was brand new, it could be very convincing that this was an actual crime scene. These people were actually missing. It was kind of a mystery on the internet and it got people excited before the film even came out. The second thing I want to talk about is um, the mockumentary, a fake documentary, called The Curse of the Blair Witch Project. This was about 40 minutes long. I had never seen it before, but I actually caught it on Tubi. How this mockumentary is set up it's set up to where it is disguised almost like a documentary that you would find on the discovery channel it comes across as very real it talks about the cast a little bit in the beginning it talks about them missing the big thing is that this mockumentary it goes over kind of the lore of the Blair Witch Project. It goes over a bunch of different stories. It has supposedly professionals that are talking about the lore. It's very interesting if you have seen this movie and have not seen the mockumentary. If you want to know more details about what happened before these three got lost, this would be a very good documentary or mockumentary to check out for itself. Mockumentaries around this time, it was nothing new. But for scary movies, this was very rare to see. There were kind of scary documentaries that are on the Discovery Channel along this time. It went over areas that were haunted. They are supposedly real if you were watching them. This was fake, but it did not play like it was fake. It played like it was a very real documentary. This mockumentary starts off with our three main actors and it just comes across as like these three people are missing we're not sure how it happened it doesn't go too deep into their situation but it does start off with family members of them talking heather's film teacher talking about how he should have saw the signs that she was going to go into this woods how they're looking for these three actors you talk to like josh's brother you talk to like Michael's girlfriend and they kind of just give you a glimpse of who these three are as characters and you kind of build sympathy for them. Now once you start feeling for these characters or people and you start wondering to yourself, man, I wonder what happened to those three. I hope they're okay. The mockumentary then spirals down to, hey, let's talk about the lore of this area. Burkittsville is the name of the town. But the mockumentary goes back so far to before it was even called Burkittsville. This mockumentary goes back all the way to 1785. A lady named Ellie Kepridge. Now, Ellie was accused of doing witchcraft. While they talk about her being accused of witchcraft, these uh, professionals if you want to call them that, historians of Burkittsville, 
There's a guy who kind of doodles in black magic. He talks about it. They kind of talk about the Salem witch trial to kind of bring some realism into it. Some historical accounts of actual people that claim to have seen witches. And they talk about how Ellie, when she was accused of witchcraft, the townspeople, they blindfolded her in the middle of winter and they tied her to a tree and they left her for dead. Once Ellie was out of the picture, the town or the colony, they got back to business, but soon the kids who accused Ellie of doing witchcraft, they began to disappear during that same winter. So many children ended up disappearing that the colony people, they turned into a frenzy and a lot of them ended up leaving the area, leaving that area as basically a ghost town. This area remained a ghost town until a man named Burkett was traveling through and decided, hey, this is a nice place to start a colony. We should bring people back and start everything up again. So they started a new colony and they ended up calling it Burkettsville, named after the guy Burkett. Burkittsville was thriving until a young girl was playing in the creek one day, a creek about, they said it was about two feet of water. She was playing in it and all of a sudden a white hand shot out of the river, grabbed the little girl and dragged her underneath the water into the mud and to where no one had seen her ever again. There were 11 witnesses that claimed that they saw the white hand shoot out of the ditch. So, of course, this starts the hysteria of, oh no, Ellie's back, she's kidnapping kids again. To increase the hysteria, the same creek that the little girl disappeared in or drowned in, an oily substance started to flow into the water and left the water undrinkable for any of the people to use. There is also stick figures that started to appear in this creek um, along the trees and the water. And this, of course, you know, made things even scarier for the people around there. And soon, all the townspeople did not want to go near that creek any longer. After these events, not much really happened in Burkittsville. There was uh, some accounts of cattle drinking from that creek, and then they later ended up dying. But other than that, nothing really happened until 1886. Now, I want to comment on some of the specialists that were talking in this mockumentary. There were some that were very, they believed that Ellie was causing all of this trouble in this area. But there was one guy who was very skeptic every time he talked. No matter what happened, he always had an excuse as to why this was not a witch. Um, it was very silly. Um, yeah, I know 11 people saw a white hand shoot out of the ground and drag a girl down into the creek, but I mean, I'm sure there's a reasonable explanation for that. Um, the, you know, the kids disappearing in the winter, he goes, oh, you know, kids go missing all the time. It, it, it could be anything. Um, the oily substance in the creek, he's like, well, you know, oil kind of appears everywhere. Every time something happens, this guy, he is a straight non-believer. He's trying to contradict everything. Um, it's kind of enjoyable to see because it's just like a typical documentary. There's always a skeptic specialist. There's the people that believe in every little lore or legend.
legend that supposedly happens in a haunted area and then you get the people talking in between so it does give itself a very real presence as a, do a documentary of something that actually happened now back to 1886 it starts with an account of a girl walking along the woods and while she's walking she runs into a lady floating in midair not walking this lady talks her into going into the woods and going all the way back into a house that is located in the woods all by itself the lady tells her to go down into the basement and she tells her to wait there and then that lady disappears and goes off somewhere else now of course being a little girl she gets scared and ends up running out and running back to town now while this girl's missing the colony village town wherever you want to call them they send out a bunch of different search parties to go looking around for her eventually when she turns up back into town they realize that one of the parties of the search party are missing themselves so and then they send out even more search parties to see where that search party went eventually they come across the search party but everyone in that party is massacred they found the bodies of the search party they were disemboweled they had carvings in their head of strange markings and you, you realize once you watch the film the Blair Witch Project it's the same markings that were on the house at the very climax of the movie the search party that found them that way they decide to go back to town and get reinforcements because so many people have died and by the time they return to the scene all of the bodies are gone now this goes to the experts talking about how Ellie the Witch did this, she massacred the people. The skeptic of course is like, well you know that girl went to the house, you know how did she make it out alive? Like I bet the little girl was just making the story up and, and then he blamed the massacre of the people on something else completely. Now after this event, they go to, they end up jumping to 1940, and you can kind of see a pattern that these occurrences or events that we're seeing, they're occurring every 40 to 50 years that an account happens to where someone is attacked or someone is killed. The event in 1940 that we jump to, it follows uh, police officers kind of interrogating this guy who's in a jail cell and you're not sure what for at first but and then they start talking about how the graveyard if you're going along this graveyard in Burkittsville you'll see a lot of graves with young ages uh, seven eight nine of them I think there were and this guy who was in the jail cell he ended up murdering all those kids he was a hermit he lived out in the woods just kind of like the story of the girl talking about the house in the woods that the floating lady led her to now this guy when he's in court they ask him if he murdered all these kids and he says yes I did they then asked him why he did it, and he said an old lady told him to. And I said, what old lady? He said, the old lady talking in my head. That then go to the experts who then talk about how they believed Ellie was the one who convinced this guy to murder all the children. Of course, the skeptic was like, no, he probably just made it up because of lore, and he was trying to get himself free by trying to appear crazy. The final bit of it, though, is what kind of makes it interesting, because there was one kid who survived an encounter with this man, and how he survived is the guy told him to go in the corner of the basement and face the wall and don't turn around. So the boy, while the guy killed all the kids, um, he just faced the wall and stood there and he listened to everything, and then he kind of found his chance to escape and he did again this kind of is a callback to the movie of you know towards the climax we see one of the characters facing the wall and everyone's like why is he facing the wall why is this a common lore and then the Blair Witch Project 
Another thing they tie in is the way he murdered these children was in the same exact way of how the search party members were killed 40 to 50 years ago. So again, there's a resemblance of these things having a pattern every 40 to 50 years that they're trying to illustrate in this mockumentary. The last thing this mockumentary goes over is the police finding a camera and missing tapes inside the woods. The camera and tapes, they're buried underneath this wall, they're buried underneath this ash, and the police were saying, we don't understand how all of this was buried here without breaking apart the wall and disturbing all the elements underground and basically saying there's physically no way that the camera and these tapes were buried here and they don't understand how they got here. Um, they also talk about how the police force is very small in Burkittsville. Many people are accusing them of not doing enough, that they know more than what they're letting on. Uh, again, it's a very mysterious way to end the, the doc or mockumentary. And it leaves you curious as you know what is on the tapes. Uh, the family members say they don't want to watch the tapes because they don't want to see the last moments of their loved ones and what exactly happened. The police say they watch the footage and you know while there looks like a disturbance there's no concrete evidence of something actually happened out of the norm. There, there's people talking about you know whether they think it's a hoax, whether they think it's real. The police are saying it's a hoax. You know what is this? Again it's in a very Discovery Channel type mockumentary that makes this appear very real and during this time if you don't really know better you haven't seen anything like this this does kind of pique your interest and like ooh, you know like I, even if you don't fully believe in it you do kind of want to see what's on the tapes what's what's the hype about this website this mockumentary that's playing on sci-fi is this real a lot of people thought it was real at the time and that's what made it so scary now the start of the actual movie the Blair Witch Project it starts with the three main characters they're all getting together you kind of know the concept of just their casual talking like oh we are doing this project to see if there's an actual witch in the woods. When the movie starts, they are talking to people in the town of Burkittsville, asking about the legend, the lore. And the cool thing is, if you watch the mockumentary, you know, some of the stories match up. They differ a little bit, but I mean, you kind of see the patterns of like, oh yeah, you know, I remember seeing that on the documentary. They do a scene in the cemetery of Burkittsville as... Heather is monologuing for their project. She talks about how a lot of the graves, there are a lot of young graves out there. Again, it's a nice tie back to the 1940 incident that you learned about in the mockumentary. The directors did a really good job of connecting the mockumentary with the film so you could kind of tie the Easter eggs together and kind of, you know, kind of aha type moments. One of the townspeople actually says, oh, I, you know, Blair Witch Project, I actually think I saw a documentary about that on the Discovery Channel. So they even kind of drop it by name if you haven't seen it. The cool thing about the townspeople of Burkittsville, the directors of the actual movie, they of course use plants to kind of use the dialogue to put the information from the mockumentary into the actual movie. But then they kind of asked people that lived in that area just to kind of give them a few lines of different scary scenarios. And some of those actually made the movie. So it, I bet it was pretty cool to be a, a townsperson and hear yourself. 
give some lore to this movie that's now very popular. As these interviews end, it shows Heather, Josh, and Michael. They're just kind of chilling in their hotel room. They're drinking alcohol. They're joking. They're saying, oh, I wonder what we're going to find. It shows them that they have really good camaraderie in the beginning, which I, I think is important because it later disappears as things get hectic. Uh, but you do get a nice sense of who the characters are while they're not in the woods yet. Now, when they get to the woods, a funny behind-the-scenes kind of story is the three actors they you know approach the woods and the director told them like okay you know we're gonna give you these directions and you guys are gonna head here to kind of start the film and I guess the three actors when they went into the woods they went completely the wrong way and they actually got lost for an hour um, which made Sanchez and Myrick very nervous about filming for eight days 24 hours a day when immediately when they started they get lost to kind of help this process, Myrick and Sanchez, they gave the three walkie-talkies just in case they went the wrong route or they're doing the wrong thing. They could just kind of buzz in and say like, hey, you need to fix your coordinates, you need to follow your GPS, um, you guys are going the wrong way. Um, despite this, they still got lost two more times during filming this film. Now these actors, they were given directions through GPS of where they needed to go every day, um, where they needed to be. Sometimes that these were just set pieces that they were to react to. Other times it's just for them to go on a general hike and for them to have lip talk and kind of just build situations among themselves. Once they reached these destinations though, oftentimes that was where they got their food. This was supposed to be where they got their tent. And there was also containers that told them what their characters were supposed to be doing at this point of the film and what they do from this point forward. Now when their journey in the woods start, all three actors, they're in pretty good headspace, they're talking, they're joking around. There's even a point to where Heather opens up a book, and in the mockumentary there's a book called The Cult of the Blair Witch, I believe it is, and I actually thought the book that she was holding might be the same exact book, but I wasn't sure. Eventually though, the group starts coming across problems to where they are marching, they're walking, and they, they want to find this graveyard, and Heather's telling them, like, oh, it's just two miles away, and then it just shows them they keep walking, they're walking, they're seeing nothing, she goes, oh, maybe it's just a mile, and they keep looking at the map, and the map's not making sense, and soon some of the people in the group start to get a little angry. Now, when I say angry, I'm, I'm talking about a character named Michael. Um, the character Michael, he seems very, he seems the angriest out of everyone in the group. And Josh in the group, he's trying to be the peacekeeper between Heather and Michael. Because Michael is very much just, you don't know where you're going, and you have the map. And Heather's like, well, you try looking at the map. And then Michael's going, well, this map, I, I can't even read it. It means nothing to me, so I guess I have to trust you. And then he'd pause and he'd go, but I, I don't trust you at all. And he seems to kind of come off as kind of hostile. The first couple of nights, nothing really happens. They continue to be lost. They continue to be aggravated. But soon, during one nighttime, they kind of hear some noises outside their tent. Um, and when they wake up the next morning, the, the noises outside their tent, they realize there's kind of piles of rocks being placed around their tents. And they don't know who exactly is doing it. And Heather, at first, seems kind of inter interested by this. To where is Michael's like, I, I don't think this is cool at all. Like, these are just rocks. What are we doing here? Now, watching the interactions between the cast members of this movie, 
I, I do think it is it's fun to watch because you know they're going through the elements they are out um, at nighttime they're sleeping in these tents there is no comfortableness for them the food they're being given to it is very small amounts of food the last two days of filming the only thing they are given is an apple and a power bar per day this is just well of course it saves costs but i mean it also kind of agitates the people to where it's easier to act like they are lost they are confused they are aggravated and they are breathing down each other's necks now there is an interesting bit to where the guy who played michael he said the directors gave them so much creative freedom on how to act and you know as long as they were following the general direction of their character michael of course was supposed to be the very mad one in the beginning uh, he made the creative decision to take the map at one point and to kick it into the creek now when he did this, the characters Josh and Heather, they were having a conversation of their own and going on in between. So Michael just kicks the map into the creek and they don't see it. And so Michael just kind of goes along his business. After this event, Heather starts looking around. She goes, oh wait, where's the map? And of course, Josh doesn't know where the map is and Heather's kind of questioning him like, hey, where is it? Where's the map? I don't know, where did you put it? The map was your responsibility and he's blaming her and then it turns into this big argument and then michael kind of just drops the bomb of how he kicked it into the creek a day ago and how the map was useless anyways this leads josh into pushing michael around screaming at him heather screaming at the top of her lungs at michael why would you do that if we die this is all your fault and now all three of them are starting to think that they're probably not going to make it out alive another story that i read while they were filming during this time is i guess the weather was kind of rough for a consecutive amount of days and the first day they endured it they camped in it but and then it started to rain again and eventually like they got fed up and they decided to leave um the directors were around during this time it was time to sleep so the three of them actually walked out of the woods and they found a house nearby the woods. Michael and Josh, they told Heather that she needed to be the one to talk to, talk to the people in the house because people tend to respond to ladies knocking at their door at night instead of full-grown men. So Heather ended up knocking on these people's house. She explained that they were in a movie. They were supposed to act like they were lost, but they weren't. But they were just looking for shelter that night and they needed to use the phone so they could call the directors. The people in the house actually let them use their phone and they got a hold of the directors and they actually spent the night at a hotel for this one night during the film. Now going back to the actual film, the three actors see these wooden characters being placed in the trees everywhere as they're hiking and if they weren't scared enough by now, now they're absolutely terrified. During this moment, Josh's character actually kind of turns into the irate character in the group. He's going off on Heather. And one interesting thing I kind of saw as the film was going is that Michael's character actually started to shift towards the reasonable one among Josh and Michael, whereas in the beginning it was a complete reverse. The shift in these dynamics actually happened naturally. Josh was struggling not just as a character but as a person because of the hunger, the fatigue, and him and Heather's character, they were actually feuding while they were on camera, off camera, and some of their exchanges were so toxic 
that the director said that it was even usable footage like it just seemed kind of cruel insults he was throwing at her they weren't meshing at all i mean they're supposed to be at each other's throats but he was just going over the top with it from what i read directors at this point there, there's a point in the film to where they're crossing a river and they have to walk on this gigantic log to cross it and then as they were trying to make their way back to the car um, they chose a different way across the creek or stream so that was about 20 minutes ago in the film and now as these actors are going they come across the same creek or stream um, the directors did this on purpose they navigated the actors through this forest to where they walked a gigantic circle and you can just see kind of the despair in all the characters faces once they see this creek again Josh starts freaking out even harder at Heather, um, calling her names, telling her she doesn't know what she's doing. She's just doing this for the film. She's leaving them out to dry. Heather's crying, saying, please, please just quit talking to me like this. Michael's character, who's toned down now, he's the one who's going, guys, we need to quit arguing. Like, we need to kind of figure this out. Um, and again, it was a nice kind of change from his, in the beginning of the movie, he's screaming, cuss words and he's just screaming that he hates being here and they're all gonna die or whatever and now he's kind of like the peacemaker and he's going up to heather like hey we have to keep our heads on we can't freak out he's going up to josh saying hey just quit yelling it's not helping anything even though he was the main contributor to yelling in the beginning of the film it was a nice turn for michael now the directors of the film, Sanchez and Myrick, they originally planned on having Michael killed, being the first one killed in the film. But as they started seeing the relationship between Heather and Josh deteriorate and how toxic it was getting, they pulled a quick audible and in the notes that they gave each actor, they put in Josh's note that at nighttime he was to sneak out of the tent and he was to leave the area. And that was his character's death. The next morning, Heather and Michael wake up and there is no Josh to be found. Both of them are freaking out. They're yelling for Josh. They're trying to find him and they can't. Heather seems like she's starting to lose it a little bit. Michael's trying to calm her down, like trying to give reasonable explanations. You know, maybe he's just down by the creek. Maybe he's getting water, but of course he's not because he never shows up again until the very next night. The very next night, they're laying down to sleep, and soon they start to hear Josh scream. They hear Josh's scream way off in the distance. They're, they get out of the tent. They start looking around, um, but they do not find him that night. The next morning, though, they do, however, find sticks tied together, and they get those sticks, and they put them by the tent. Heather says she doesn't know she wants to open them. Michael's like, okay. Michael goes off by himself, and Heather ends up opening up the sticks to see what's inside of it. What is inside of it is Josh's tongue, teeth, and there's bits of hair with blood mixed all over it. It's kind of just a very gross, grainy scene. The teeth were actually given to the directors by a local dentist. He donated the teeth for the production of the film, and the hair that is in that mess was actually Josh's hair, his real hair that they used um, for that little bit. Heather does not tell Michael what she sees and that sticks. Michael walks over. Heather's kind of on the ground trying to collect herself. She looks like she's about to have a mental breakdown. He's asking her what's wrong. She's telling him she's just hungry. And Michael's kind of guiding her along the path. And he's like, oh, we're going to make it out. Come on. Um, but uh, you can tell by Heather's face that, you know, she doesn't quite believe that. As proof, the very next night, Heather 
she had the instructions for her character to grab the camera to wander off so she doesn't spook Michael and to record herself saying that she was sorry and that they were going to die out there and she was basically just apologizing to anyone who watches the footage. This scene is an iconic shot that's a close-up of her eyes and her nose but it was actually an accident. Um, the actor who played Heather she thought that she zoomed the camera out enough to capture her whole face but it was too zoomed in and that's how you get that shot of the close-up of her eyes and her nostrils with the snot running out and it looks all gross and she's crying when the directors saw this they, they saw it as it was a mistake but it was a very powerful looking mistake and it was a very iconic image for this movie the next and last scene is where Heather and Michael, they stumble upon the house in the middle of the woods. The house has talked about so much in the mockumentary. They approach this house and there's symbols across the entire house. There's handprints from little kids inside the house. It's a very broken down looking house. Like it is not in good shape at all. The directors actually filmed this scene differently than all the other scenes in the movie just because they didn't want an actor who's going full go to get hurt, to trip, to fall on the broken stairs. It was a very technical shot to where everything was kind of controlled. Heather and Michael, they go upstairs and while they are upstairs, Michael hears Josh's voice downstairs. He goes down the stairs very quickly, leaving Heather behind. When he gets downstairs, you're following his camera, and as he turns the corner, his camera goes straight to the ground, kind of indicating that he was hit or attacked or something along those lines, or he just dropped his camera. The actor who played Michael actually said while filming it, he didn't exactly know what was going on, but when he turned the stairs, he said that someone in production actually shoved him to the ground to make that quick, abrupt, and just fall to the ground type thing. And after he hit the ground, the production person then just said, Hey, hurry up, quick, get up, get up. Go to that wall and just face the wall. That's all you need to do. And that's exactly what he did for the next scene. The last scene is Heather, who was left far behind. She's screaming for Michael to wait. She's scared. She's crying. She goes down the stairs, and when she gets down there, she sees Michael facing the wall. You see his back, and he's just standing there. And then Heather's camera goes down to the ground, indicating that she is dead. That's the end of the film. A lot of people, this, uh, again, there's a big cult following for this film. Some people complain that you don't see the Blair Witch, and that's a problem for them to wear, as I think that's what kind of makes it so effective. The directors actually planned on showing the Blair Witch. There was a scene at nighttime to where they run out, and when they run out of their tent, as they're sprinting, you hear Heather scream something along the lines of, what is that? And she's freaking out. She yells it three or four times, and what she actually saw in the woods was the production members put out a person who was dressed like an all-white, and they were hoping that the all-white would stand out on camera. Well, as the actors were running and Heather saw it, she said, what is that? The person filming, they tried to look over it, but they could not get it on camera. And when they missed that shot on camera, the person who was dressed in the all white, they fell into a creek or fell into a body of water and they got soaked and it was freezing that night. So production members had to rush over to them while the actors were running away to help get the guy out of the water. Again, it was a mistake that happened, but I think it was a mistake that helped the movie in the long run. It kind of just, it let your imagination do the work instead of actually the film showing you and then the image that the film shows you ends up being a letdown. If you look up the budget to the Blair Witch Project, it, 
the number that's commonly used is 60,000, which that's where, that was the money that was used towards the talent, the camera, the shoot, everything that went towards it. The one thing that Myrick and Sanchez were concerned about, or very worried about, was the, the sound system, um, the dialogue being vocal. So they ended up putting a lot more money towards uh, post-production just to improve the sound, make sure everything was heard, make sure everything sounded like they needed it to. And the final budget ended up being 200000 to 750000 And that's just from Ratbook, from what I read from Ratbook. So majority of its budget went towards the sound. Now with that being said, the movie ended up making $250 million. So I think the movie did more than enough than what it needed to do. This movie actually inspired a lot of found footage movies that are made today, whether it be Paranormal Activity, Quarantine, Wreck, Lake Mungo, uh, you name it, any found footage movie. They probably got their inspiration from the Blair Witch Project. I mean, they weren't the first ones to do found footage, but they were probably the ones who popularized found footage films. Well, that's all I had to talk about the Blair Witch Project. I hope you enjoyed listening, and if you haven't seen these films, I hope you do, because they are fun films to watch. Thank you for listening to Field of Screams.